0: If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to uh, the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter, let me say two introductory words here. I know this is Father's Day, and a lot of you have got uh, lunch appointments and uh, things that as soon as that message is over, you'd love to run out the door um, and uh, I'm going to ask you that uh, we're not going to go long but just ask that you stick around because at the close of our service we will do something historic it's never been done in the 106 year history of our church and so we hope that you'll stick around for that put the carrot out there all right second this is father's day so all the fathers I want you to stand up all the all the dads you stand up and keep standing keep standing all right and stay up I want you to remain standing. Let me share this with you. Fathers are very important. You probably heard some of these statistics. I want you to hear them again. 63% of teen suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of youths that are sitting in prison grew up in fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. A white teenage girl from an advantaged background is five times more likely to become a teen mother if she grows up in a single mother household than if she grows up in a household with both biological parents. Mothers first to accept Christ, the rest of the family will convert 17% of the time. A child first to convert to accept Christ, the family follows 31% of the time. When a father turns to Christ first, the family will follow him 93% of the time. And those stats are about the same as when the father takes the lead of saying, let's go to church, the family will follow. You have an incredible opportunity to courageously lead your family and to invest in your children and shape the next generation. You get to do this because you're a father. And because you're a dad, okay? You may be seated on there. Every father wants to give direction to his family. And usually we do that with our words. But no matter how clear we try to be in those words, sometimes they get misunderstood. I love the story about the little elementary school girl who got her grades. The teacher gave her the grades. She was to take those grades home. When she got home, she showed them to her parents. Her parents were then to sign off on those grades, and then she was to bring those back to the teacher. And so in bringing those grades back to the teacher, she handed them to the teacher, and she looked her in the eye, and she says, I've got to warn you. My daddy said, if these grades don't get better, somebody's going to get a spanking. Even in the best of times, we say these things and sometimes they get misunderstood. But there is nothing more powerful than words that are matched up with actions. And when our words and our actions match up, then all of a sudden we are providing a model of a life committed to God. And we give a life that hopefully our kids can observe and even emulate. Joshua chapter 24 is a um, is a great chapter as you're closing out this wonderful book of Joshua. It is a, uh, a closing statements and challenges from a leader who is Joshua, and to lead us up to chapter 24. Um, you go all the way back to when the children of Israel were in captivity over 400 years in Egypt. Uh, God called Moses to help get the children out. They took them out. They went through the Red Sea. Uh, there were other miracles. Uh, they got to the edge of the promised land. And we preached the last two weeks about being right there on the edge of the promised land. And they sent the 12 spies into the new land. They came back. Two of them were trusting. And they said, let's trust God and go in. The other 10 were terrified. And they said, there are giants in the land. We can't go. They voted 10 to 2, decided not to go in. So God says, You will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and every adult 20 years and older will die here in the wilderness, except for the families of Caleb and Joshua, because they were the two trusting spies that trusted me. And so, sure enough, at the end of those 40 years, Joshua became the leader. Moses died. Joshua was commissioned the leader and he carried the people into the promised land. And they began to take over and, 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 uh, and be a portion, different parts of all the promised land that God had promised for hundreds of years. And now they've come to a time of rest. And in chapter 24, he brings all the leaders together at a place called Shechem. And it's interesting that of all the promised land, he chose Shechem to bring these leaders there. Because it was at Shechem in Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, that God spoke to Abraham and he called him and he says, he says, I will give all of this land to your offspring. And there at Shechem, Abraham built an altar to God. And it was an altar of saying, I trust you. I worship you. I believe in you. And one day this will be our land. And what is interesting is in that same book of, of Genesis, one of his grandchildren, Jacob, was living in Shechem. And God called him and said, I want you to go to Bethel. I want you to live there. And I want you to build an altar to me and worship there. And so Jacob calls all his family and all the people that were with him. And he said, we're getting ready to move to Bethel. and We're going to worship the Lord. But before we go, I'm going to ask you to take all those foreign gods that you've been hanging on to. I know you have. And I want you to bring them to me. And when you bring them to me, I'm going to take them here in Shechem. And we're going to bury them under this terebrinth tree. kind of like an oak tree. And that's where we're going to bury them. So all of a sudden in Shechem, you've already seen an altar built by Abraham. His grandson, Jacob, has buried all these false gods over there. And now, hundreds of years later, Joshua's there with all these leaders in Shechem. And he's giving them kind of a final challenge. When I began to look at this, look at this passage and you start in in chapter 24 verses uh, 1 through uh, 13, he begins to walk them through what happened. And he tells them about how they went from Egypt, got into, through the wilderness, and they've come into the promised land. And if you get to verse 11, He says, and you went over the Jordan and you came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gergesites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the ites, all of the ites that were fighting against you in the land. And God says this, and I gave them into your hand. And then he says, and I sent the hornet before you which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built and you dwell in them and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So he lays all of this out telling them all the things that God has done and then he comes to verse 14 he says now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you've heard that last part a bunch. You've heard it quoted many times. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was speaking to the people as a leader of the people and when he got to the end of verse 15 and said but as for me in my house we will serve the Lord he was now speaking to them as a husband and as a father not just a leader of the people but as a husband and a father but as for me and my house my family we will serve the Lord so if to me it was like a father's day message at Shechem and joshua speaks to every one of us as dads today and he's speaking to us at shades mountain in birmingham but it's like a father's day at shechem so i want us to listen and take from here what joshua is really saying to us today there are three main things that he lays out first thing he does is there's the challenge the very first thing is the challenge and that's found in verses 14 and 15 He has just told them all these things that God has done for them. God's won all these victories. He's allowed you to move into cities that you didn't build. He's allowed you to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. And so he says, now, therefore, because all these things God has done, here is your challenge. And he tells him three things. Number one, fear the Lord. The very first thing he says is, you are to fear the Lord. That means there is to be a reverence and an awe of this God who showed his power to get you into this place. And that's a challenge for us. First thing is dads. Let's take the challenge. Let's fear the Lord. Number two is he says, serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. Serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. It's one thing to fear God, to have this awe and this reverence, but it's another than to actively serve him. That means to serve him with integrity and truth. To serve him with integrity and truth. To go and listen to his commands, for him to be able to engage your heart and to serve him. And then number three is throw away all the other gods throw away all the other gods now oftentimes if you've read through this verse you just sit there and say okay they've got these idols they need to get get rid of them but have you looked closely at where he said these gods came from he says put away the gods that your father served beyond the river beyond the river is the euphrates river beyond the river is where abraham first got started in genesis so I want you to listen to this. He said, I want you to throw away the gods from Abraham's time. You know, that's about like 700 years ago. That means these guys, these have been, they've been carting around gods, worshiping other things for hundreds of years. I mean, that, that is as old school as you can get, and they're carrying those with them. But then he also says, look what he says. The Serbian and in Egypt and in Egypt. Okay, now listen, Egypt, we've been gone. We've been gone from Egypt. We've been gone from Egypt uh, probably 60, 70 years. we've, We've been out of Egypt. And yet some of you are still carrying around those same gods that you were worshiping when you lived back in Egypt. And then he says in verse 15, and then get rid of the gods of the Amorites. It's where we dwell right now. He says, you're carrying around things from way from your past. And you're carrying around some things right here in the culture. And I'm telling you right now, he says, you need to throw all those gods away. This is the challenge. Fear God. And he says, serve him in sincerity and then throw away all other gods. And what he's telling him, he says, some of these things have been handed down from you from your family. They were keepsakes. And so you keep them in the trunk. And he says, I don't want you to keep them in the trunk. I don't want you to pack them and put them in the attic. I don't want you to put them in the closet. I want you to throw them away. I want you to get rid of those gods. You see, you've got weaknesses and traits that have been handed down from your family. And you sometimes treat them as heirlooms and display them on the mantles of your lives. And you use them as excuses as to why you can't serve God wholeheartedly. I do that because that's what my dad did. Or I do that because that's what we've always done in our family. I've got this issue, that issue. And what we do is we put it on the mantle and say, this gives me excuse. I can't serve God wholeheartedly because this is the way we've always done it in my family. And what Joshua is saying is, let's get a fresh new start. Let's throw away all those gods from the past. Don't keep hauling them around. Let's get rid of that excess baggage. And so for us today is to identify the habits and the attitudes, the activities, the possessions that take priority over your time with God. The things that you have used to elevate over God and over your family. Confess those and just leave them and check them. And that's what he's wanting. Just leave them right here and check them and let's move forward. That's the challenge. And Joshua's telling him, hey, Quit playing the game of splitting allegiance to Jehovah God into these idols. God does not want part-time allegiance. He wants full-time obedience. And what they were wanting to do was to just give part-time allegiance to God and to these other gods. And he said, no, what I'm looking for is full-time obedience. That's the challenge. Well, then we come to the choice. After he lays out the challenge, look what he says in verse, in verse 15. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. That means, hey, if you, if you don't really want to serve God, here's your choice. You got to make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You got to choose. Now, he did not say choose if you're going to serve a God, he said choose which gods you will serve. Who will you serve? Because, see, you're going to serve one God or the other. You're either going to serve the gods of the Amorites of our present culture or the gods that you've been holding to in the past, or you will serve Jehovah God, the one true God. You've got to make your choice. And he says, laying out to all the leaders, says you've got to choose this day what you would do. You see, the reason it is not whether we serve but whom we serve is because of how we were created and what is inside of us. In the 17th century, there was a man by the name of Blaise Pascal who was a mathematician and a theologian. And in his writings, this is what he says. He says that in man there was once a true happiness that is now empty. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Though none can help, since its infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and an immutable object. In other words... By God Himself. Now, this is a quote that we will take in today's world, we paraphrase it and say, There is a God shaped vacuum in every person's heart. And that's what He's saying. And it's a vacuum in our heart that can only be filled not with the small g gods. Those are the things that we try to fill with the things of this world. And when we try to fill it with the things of this world, we find out that it's just not satisfying. There's an emptiness there. It is because it's a capital G God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by Jehovah God. It can only be filled by our loving Father. It can only be filled by the holy God who created this world and created us. It can only be filled by the one that we desire to have a relationship with. We were created to have a relationship with God. And that was his desire, his plan the whole time. But what happens is, is that we sin, we do things wrong, and it separates us from God because he's this holy God. And as we get separated from him, there's an emptiness in our heart because that's where we want that relationship to be. But yet it's not there any longer. And so we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill that with all the things in this world, and none of it works. And there's no way we could ever get back to God because we can never be good enough to get back to him. And so what God did in his an amazing love was he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come to live on earth, to live a perfect life for 33 years, and to show us who God was, and to allow us to see through, our, through his teaching and through his actions. But then people rejected that message, and they took that same Jesus, and they crucified him on a cross, And when they took him, they put this perfect son of God and placed him on a cross. And he nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. And for six hours, he was in agony and in pain as he was paying for the sins of the world. Because the Bible had said that the wages of sin is death. There has to be death to pay for those sins. And Jesus says, I'll pay for them. And out of his love, he chose to do this. And he even told when he was arrested and when they were talking and they were saying, I've got all this power. He says, listen, I could call to my father and we'd have 10,000 angels down here just like that. But I don't because I choose to go to the cross because I love you so much. And he died for our sins. And it would have been a sad story if it ended there, but the Bible teaches that three days later, God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to his apostles, appeared to 500 other people. And there for about 40 days here on earth, and then he ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the father. And when he raised him from the dead, it showed that he was greater than sin. It showed he was greater than death and that he can put us into a right relationship with God. And every one of us has that opportunity. And then all of a sudden this God shaped vacuum We can receive this gift of Christ, receive this grace gift. And when we do that, it is as if we're like crossing a bridge, coming over to God, and that relationship happens, and his spirit comes in our heart, and he fills that vacuum, and he fills that void. And what Joshua was saying, he says, you got to choose this day. Choose this day whom you will serve. The foreign gods, Are you going to serve the one God that has carried us out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, which will you do? And I'm asking all the dads the same thing. Which God will you serve? Do you want to keep serving the foreign gods or the one true God? So there was a challenge, there was a choice, but then there was the commitment. Or I think is just as good a declaration or an affirmation. And it's what, it's after he lays out this choice, he then tells everyone, I'm going to let you know what my choice is, okay? (laughs) So here's your choice. You make whatever choice, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He didn't take a poll. He didn't wait to see what was the most popular decision was. He didn't consider what would best help his career. He just stepped out, boldly proclaimed not only his intention, but also his family's intention. And he led by example because his life was an example. Now, when you read this, when you first read it, you say, wow, Joshua's pretty bold. He stepped right out and he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, for him, you kind of wonder. He said, now, why did he even do this? Because if you go, that's verse 15, you find out that Joshua's 110 years old. And in verse 29, he dies. Verse 29, it says, after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. So he stood before the people, made this decision, but yet he wasn't going to live much longer. And then he made this bold claim. Not only will he serve the Lord, but so will its household. Pretty bold claim. How can he make that particular claim? And how can we as dads make that same claim? Not only me, but also my house will serve the Lord. I'm going to give you three things as to how we can make that claim, how he made that claim. Number one, live an exemplary life. Live an exemplary life. Now, There may be a couple of you who say exemplary. Hey, what's that? <laughs> it's a definition, serving as a desirable model representing the best of its kind. I love that definition. Representing the best of its kind. Wouldn't you love to be that dad that you represent the best of that kind? If someone said, what's a dad? What's a good dad? They call you out and say, hey, come over here. This is the exemplary model. He's the best of the kind. He is the role model. Live an exemplary life. You say, well, looking at Joshua, how does he live that exemplary life? Every time I read this story, I'm always drawn back to two qualities of Joshua that just blows me away. Number one is this. Strong enough to fight for you in the valley, yet sensitive enough to walk with you in the mountains. we we'll are gonna leave that up there for a moment. I want you to write this down. Strong enough to fight for you in the valley, yet sensitive enough to walk with you in the mountains. Now, while we leave that up, let me explain it to you. What do you mean he's strong enough to fight in the valley? When they left Egypt and they began to travel towards the promised land, a group called Amalek were going to fight them. And Moses had to choose one man to lead the fight. Now, understand, these people have been in captivity over 400 years. They hadn't fought in 400 years. They haven't had any military training. And yet, all of a sudden, they're getting ready to fight the Amalekites. And they're looking for some guy that he can entrust to be the leader to go into the valley and fight the battle. And the guy he chose was Joshua. He says, you are strong enough to go into the valley and to fight the battle. Well, then you go a little bit further, you get to Exodus chapter 24, God is talking to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to come up to the mountain, and that's where I'll give you the Ten Commandments, I'm going to give you the law. And when Moses was going up to the mountain, out of the million people in there, he could choose one person to go with him. Guess who he chose? Joshua. Joshua. This was a pinnacle spiritual event in the life of Moses. And he could choose any man that he wanted. And he chose Joshua. Joshua would be the last person that he would see before he stepped into God's presence. Joshua would be the first person he would see when he stepped out of the presence of God. This is a person need to be sensitive enough to be able to look at him and to listen to him explain what just took place. And to be able to rejoice with him, to be able to savor that moment with him, And so he picked a man, who Joshua, who was strong enough to fight in the valley, but yet sensitive enough to be with him there in the mountains. Listen, we look at that first part. As men, we welcome the challenge to fight for our family. And we need to be warriors for our families. We need to work hard to provide and protect them and just to be what they need in the valley. But we also need to be sensitive to their needs on the mountain. We need to be able to take the time to hear the heart of our spouse and we need to spend time with our children. It's more than just being the guy that can bow up and be there to protect them and provide for them. But also as men, we need to be like Joshua and be sensitive enough where we can hear the hearts of our spouses and be able to spend the time with our kids and to understand them. He was exemplary. He was strong. He was sensitive. And number two, he had risky faith willing to make a stand. Risky faith willing to make a stand. Now, some of you probably look up and said, whiskey faith? No, risky, all right? R-I-S-K-Y, <laughs> risky faith. Uh, I practiced that line about four times. I said, you know, it sounds like whiskey, but uh, <laughs> risky with an R.'" Risky faith. And we talked about this last couple of weeks. He was a part of that group that went into the promised land. He saw all the obstacles, but he came back and he says, God has gotten us this far. God has promised us the land. Let's move forward. Everybody else was against him. In fact, they were so against him. They picked up stones. They were getting ready to kill him. And he could have easily said, Hey, I need to back up from that particular position. I think I was incorrect, but he didn't. He didn't. He said, we can take the land. God's going to give it to us. And these weren't bad people. These are people that had gone through the same things they'd gone through. They'd seen, they'd gone, seen the plagues in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They'd eaten the manna. They'd done all of this, but they were totally against Joshua and Caleb in their report, but he stayed strong in it. And he was willing to risk it all because he knew that was the right thing to do. And he was going to make the stand. He trusted God completely and said, I'll make the stand. I've always thought about that story when all these people are standing around and and there's the anticipation of the report and Caleb and Joshua give their good report. The other 10 give their scary, fearful report, and then they go to sleep at night. Everybody's wailing and crying. They wake up the next morning and they are just angry and enraged. And I, as a child of Joshua, am seeing my dad stand right there wondering, now, is he just going to back off and go the safe route? And he just says, I'm not backing off. We need to go into the land. God said, I will give you the land. Now, we're either going to trust him or not. And I say we trust him. And then you begin to see these friends and neighbors that you thought liked you and liked your dad. And they're picking up stones and they're cursing him and they're enraged and they're getting ready to kill him. And your dad stands. Wow. What does that speak to you? And then you don't really understand the magnitude of it until you begin to go through that 40-year wandering through the wilderness and you see all these older people die. Oh, those that are 20 and above dying in the wilderness, just like God said they would. And at the end of 40 years, guess what? The only families in tech are Caleb's and yours. And you walk into that promised land with your mom and your dad and maybe by that time you're married and you've got kids and you're going into the promised land. And you're realizing how faithful God is and that your dad made that stand. I got to tell you, <laughs> that would speak volumes to me. And you look at the life that he lived and how he took the courageous stand. And then he led them when they went into the land. And then he apportioned the land. And now he's standing here as a granddad in his last years. And he's shown everyone. Listen. Listen. I've stepped out on faith, and God has been faithful. In fact, Joshua 23, 14, he says when he's speaking to all the people, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Everything God said would happen, happened. You see, when we stretch out on the promises of God, when we push the envelope of our faith, when we commit rather than compromise, when we trust rather than turn away, our family sees this and it energizes them. And they see that your faith is more than a Sunday morning worship experience, more than a sweet by and by. It is real and my God is worthy to be served and I can give total allegiance to him. Your family sees that, Dad. And so... That's why I say, live exemplary. Be that model. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So to make that claim, there's a second thing, and that is to renew your influence. Renew your influence. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I kept thinking. Every time I've read this passage, I said, oh, no, he's, a, he's 110. He made that big, bold stand years ago. He's followed God completely. Why does he need to stand before these people and say, hey, but for me, let's just leave out the house for a moment. As for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. Isn't that kind of a foregone conclusion? Let me give you what I think. I don't really think he was saying that for all those people. I think he was mainly saying it for his kids and his grandkids. Saying it for that next generation. Because they need to hear him. Verbally, publicly say, and as for me, I'm following the Lord. That is my choice. You know, we did a sermon series a little while back about influence. And you remember we talked about influence and uh, we used the illustration of Newton's Cradle. And we talked about how that when you pull the, this ball back and what happens, it will strike another sphere. And when it strikes one of those spheres, the energy that goes into that causes a reaction of another sphere to move. And so it was just like something like, like this. And it was talking about how one life affects another life. And, and so we, we use this for a number of, of messages and, and talked about that. Well, I got an email uh, near the end of the series from uh, Dr. Uh, Renato Camado, Don't you love that name? And uh, he, he's, a, he's associate professor of physics at UAB. And he and I usually sit down and talk a lot of phys- physics theories and quantum physics. And, yeah you know, oh, it's just so much fun uh, on there. And uh, I know I've challenged him many, many times. But he sent this incredible email. And let me just read you part of it. Because what he did is uh, he was telling us uh, why, uh, in fact, it came out of Chad's sermon because when Chad did this, it, it didn't go very long. And he just kind of threw out a comment, so I'm sorry, I, I you know, I guess I didn't do it right or it didn't go long enough. Well, he sends this email and he says, the reason the cradle does not keep going forever is that some energy of the motion is lost in the collisions between the spheres. The energy of motion is converted into heat and sound, which are lost energy that cannot be recovered. And so some of the energy you gave to the first sphere was dissipated by the collisions. And the only way to keep the cradle going is by injecting new energy or by renewing our influence. The cradle needs to be restarted. Because over time, he says, because of the collisions with others, it will lose its energy. And he says the same thing happens to us is that as we go through time and there's a collision that we have with other, other people, that all of a sudden, sometimes that influence just kind of slows down and we kind of forget about it. That energy is dissipated. So we need to renew that influence. And so it's not just a one-time thing. It is something that we need to do consistently. And so... When he did that, it it stayed with me. And when I was taking a look at here with Joshua, I really believe Joshua's looking out for his children and his children's children because he wants them to know God in the same way that he does. And he wants to make this public commitment, this declaration. He wants to restart the cradle. He wants to renew his influence and tell them while they're sitting there, he just wants to go on and kind of strike that ball again and say, but as for me, I will serve the Lord. For me, I will serve the Lord. For my son, his family, for the grandkids, all of these guys back here, I want you to know that. I want to step up and let you know that I will serve the Lord. So you say, well, Danny, will you do this by reminding your family of the faithfulness of God? So, men, I want you to think about this cradle. And I want you to take opportunities in your family just to remind them of the faithfulness of God and the blessings he's bestowed on your family. Explain the whys of decision that you make that involve Christian ethics. Sons, daughters, we are going this direction or we're gonna have to say yes to this or no to this because of and give them biblical reasons. Remind your children of why you tithe. Why do you have that envelope? Why have you filled this out? Why are you giving a tithe? Explain to them why you do that. Why do you serve others, Dad? Why are we getting involved in these different projects? Explain that to them. Every time you do that, it's like renewing your influence. You're starting the cradle again, and you're saying, we will serve the Lord. And my desire is that our household will serve the Lord. And last is this. Set a path for your children to keep them out of the mud. Set a path for your children to keep them out of the mud there's a little girl who was with her daddy and he had made this new garden and was this new garden it was a newly created garden he then had to step from this end over there to get to the house and so he carefully was stepping through the garden so that he could stay out of the mud okay and as he was taking those particular steps, his little girl was walking in his same footsteps. And she made the comment to him Daddy, I'm walking in your footsteps because I don't want to get any mud on me either. You see, the dad was charting a path that would keep his child out of the mud. And he said, And the girl was perceptive that if I will follow the path that you have set, then I won't get any mud on me either. Now, when I'm talking about mud, I'm not talking about a life that has no heartache, no difficulties, no challenges. That's life. And as much as we love our kids, there's no way we can protect them from all the things that life is going to throw at them. But when I'm talking about mud, what I am talking about Those things such as the mud of alcohol abuse, drug addiction, sexual sins, materialism, laziness, greed, critical spirit, disrespectful attitudes. You see, you can model a life that they can follow that will minimize the mud in their life. And if you live a life that is pure in the word of God to where you look to a holy God and live for him and your children have that opportunity to follow that same path, you will help them from getting in the mud. But you see, if you chart a path that's in the mud, oftentimes they will follow that path and they're going to have a muddy life. Now, you need to understand every child has to choose their own path. And some choose mud. No matter what your steps are, some will choose mud and they go their own way and they will reject the clean path that you as a dad may have set apart for them. You can't force a child to walk a certain path, but you can at least provide them a clean, godly path that they can follow obeying God and then they can reap the rewards of his faithfulness and love. Set a path for your children to keep them out of the mud. Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. Men, it begins with me. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. As dads on this Father's Day, let's take that me part and let's say, I want to follow you fully, Lord. And then when I do that, I want to set a pathway for the rest of my family to do the same and to follow you with all their hearts. Now, as I close the message, what I want to ask is if as a father here and you're there with your family, I want you just as a whole family to hold hands together. Just grab hands and hold hands. For some of you guys, you had not held your wife's hand in a long time. This is good, isn't it? It feels good over here. I just, and then that connection is a family. And what I'd like for you to do today is I want you to make your commitment, your declaration that you will serve the Lord by living an exemplary life and setting a path for your children to keep them out of the mud. I'd love for you to make this declaration today and sometime today, publicly with your family, renew your influence. Sometime today, on this Father's Day, renew your influence. Talk about the blessings that God has given us. Maybe just sharing your own heart with them and say, you know what? I want to set that path. I want to set that path for our family. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, I thank you for the honor and the privilege that you give us as dads to be able to pour our lives into children and to try to point them towards you. You are our Heavenly Father, and so you are who we look towards. And so, Lord, we pray that we would make our commitment to follow you, not to serve other gods, but to follow you, not to split our allegiance, but to have a full-time obedience to you. And that as we do that, we would then live for you. And as we live for you, Father, that we would then, as men, courageously lead our families, renew those commitments, strengthen the influence that you have given us, And allow us to point our families towards Christ. So Lord, we thank you. And we lift these up in your son's name. Amen.